Okay, good morning, everyone. Some of you would remember a book written several years ago by Stephen Covey called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's a great book, actually, and there's a particular story in there where he demonstrates how your paradigm can shift, and you can see things very differently. I'm just going to read this to you from his book. He says, I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm and peaceful scene. Then suddenly a man and his children entered the subway. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing, and yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't do a little more to control them. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Can you imagine, Covey says, what I felt at that moment? Suddenly, I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I thought differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. My heart was filled with the man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died? I am so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought you knew what was happening, maybe judged it, and then realized later, wow, that wasn't it at all? In the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, there are two incidents that happen on a Monday and a Tuesday, uh, the week that Jesus was crucified, where Jesus, well, it apparently looked like he was having a meltdown, some outbursts. And this would have been a great surprise to the disciples. They may have, in their own hearts, pronounced judgment on it, but they would see later that actually Jesus knew what he was doing. And I'm thinking that maybe we'll come to the same realization this morning as we look at this passage. You see, God's Word and the actions of Jesus have stood the test of time. And I think we're going to see in Mark chapter 11 that time vindicates the Lord's actions. A couple of points that relate to that in your bulletin. And the first is this. Jesus' outbursts gave the appearance he was out of control. The day before the incident we're going to look at, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and the city was welcoming him. I mean, the people came out, they threw palm branches and, and garments before him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the king. They were welcoming 
the, the one who they thought would reign over them in an earthly kingdom. This was what we call Palm Sunday. And so Jesus came into Jerusalem that day. He went into the temple up on Temple Mount, into the court, and looked around. And then he left with his disciples and went about two miles outside the city to Bethany, where he stayed the night. And we'll pick it up in this passage the next morning. It'll be Monday morning. So verse uh, 12 of chapter 11. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. The disciples were surprised. Like, what has gotten into Jesus? I know he seems a little stressed here, and there's some hostility in Jerusalem. I'm just speculating what they were thinking. And they're thinking, this is March. And yes, a fig tree is going to have leaves in March, but they don't really produce figs until June. Isn't this a little unfair to the tree? What is he thinking? This seems a little out of character. And actually, it does seem out of character for Jesus. I mean, this is the only destructive miracle that you have in the Gospels. There have been those down through the ages that have been surprised at this as well. In fact, people write commentaries on Scripture. And some of those commentators have taken real issue with this and said, I'm not sure we should even have this in the Bible. One of them was a guy named... Um, Hunter, he said, with our knowledge of Jesus from other sources, we find it frankly incredible that he would have used his power to wither a fig tree because it did not yield figs two or three months before its natural time of fruitage. So he's setting that one aside. A commentator by the name of T.W. Manson weighed in. It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands, it's simply incredible. In other words, I don't believe it, that it should be attributed to Jesus. And there was an atheist writer of yesteryear by the name of Bertrand Russell. He listed this incident as one of the reasons he didn't believe in Christ or Christianity. So for believers and unbelievers, this seems out of character. Something wrong. Something doesn't fit here. Sometimes people do things out of character. I'll, I'll mention one personally in a moment, but first I'll just take a little side trip. I mean, when Dee and I returned to the islands in 1993, Gene Smith was one of the elders here, still is, but he invited me to play golf. And so we played golf and uh, continued to do so uh, for 22 years until he phoned me about a year and a half ago and said, Ron, I've dreaded making this phone call, but I'm going to put my golf clubs away. I said, oh, man, come on, Gene. You're only 95. And uh, he insisted, and so he did, you know. And so that was a year and a half ago. And so that's why this last Thursday we had decided, let's have the Gene Smith Open. So Keoki and Jay Jarman and, oh gosh, Scott and a bunch of us gathered together and uh, 
just, we played nine holes, but it was really about Gene Smith and celebrating him, our hero, because he's a man of faith. He's been a leader in this church through the decades who's made such an impact on this church and so many lives here. And um, we just wanted to honor and celebrate him. And it was a wonderful time. We told stories. We laughed. I mean, so many memories that have come through the years from Gene and from our interactions with him that we wanted to just remember and cherish and celebrate. One of the stories that wasn't told, and I probably shouldn't even tell it here, uh, happened uh, not all that long ago. We were on the ninth hole at the Nagorski Golf Course in Fort Shafter, and uh, they have a bucket off to the side where they put sand in it to replace divots if you take some divot with your drive. Well, I, I took a drive with an iron, and it was a really errant drive, okay? And so well, calmly walked over to the side, and somehow that bucket just caught my eye, and I just kicked the bucket. <laughs> and it flipped upside down, and all the sand went all over the place. And I looked around at my buddies, and they're like, Whoa, what happened to him, you know? <laughs> they were surprised. I was a little surprised myself. <laughs> Not at the shot, but at that. It's like, oh, I guess there's something down in there. And I mention that because I think that that's a hint of how the disciples felt when they saw Jesus curse that unfortunate fig tree. What is that all about? Actually, it gets worse as you go on in this passage because it says, then they came to the temple, or they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he wouldn't permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. They used to use it as a shortcut from one part of the city to another. John says in his gospel that he even made a whip of cords and drove them out. That was amazing. And I think the disciples are thinking, what is going on here? But then it says, he began to teach them and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And the disciples are thinking, wow, this is like a meltdown because now Jesus is attacking the very pinnacle of power in Jerusalem. And that would be the priesthood, the chief priests and those surrounded them. Because they knew, as all of Israel did, that this outer court where they had the marketplace was known as the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the former high priest, but he still held the reins of power. And he was able to operate this bazaar out there where they uh, would exchange money coming into the temple. People had to pay a temple tax, but they wouldn't accept Roman or Greek money had to be changed for shekels, and there was an exorbitant exchange rate. This was a place where animals were purchased for sacrifice. In fact, Passover week, the historian Josephus said 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed during that one week. Talk about a lot of activity. Think of when they came into that place, in fact, had on Sunday, and now here it is Monday, the sights, I mean, it's just chaotic. The sounds of all the animals, the smells in this outer court. This is supposed to be the temple of worship, and this is what is going on in here. And so Jesus seems to be attacking the very 
heart of the uh, religion of Israel. And so when you think of Temple Mount and the temple, we have different pictures of it. I want to show you a depiction here. This is um, uh, somewhat what it would have looked like. You can only see the city beyond, but uh, there, were, there was a wall way around here. There were several concentric rectangular walls. This would have been the court of the Gentiles out here. Uh, there would have been other courts as well. You go in, in fact, the Gentiles couldn't go past here uh, because that would have been the court of women, then another court, the court for Jewish men, and then the court for priests, and finally the Holy of Holies in the center. But the whole place would have been covering about 35 acres. It was huge. And about three footballs, football fields wide and five football fields long. It was very large. And that's what was happening in those outer courts. This is pretty calm here, a night shot. But during the day, in Jesus' day, it would have been a chaotic swap meet on steroids, you might say. Well, then it says, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples would go out of the city. They'd go back to Bethany. But it was time. The chief priests and scribes decided to get rid of Jesus. Well, Jesus' outburst gave the appearance that he was out of control. But history shows it's he alone who holds control. And I think we'll see that in a few moments here. So now it's the next day. It's Tuesday morning. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Now Jesus responds to Peter's surprise at the fig tree just being dead there with a teaching on faith and prayer. And that could be a whole message in itself, but we're not going to go there this morning. I want to instead consider... What, what was really happening here with the fig tree and, and what this was all about. And we see some clues in this passage that help us to understand what both of these outbursts were about. The first clue is the fig tree. Because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the fig tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel. Even in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is talking about the end of the age and all the events and the chaos that will lead up to that and to his return, he says, look at the fig tree. When it puts forth its branches uh, and they're tender and its leaves, you'll know the time is at hand. And so scholars for years have understood the nation of Israel had to come back into existence because that fig tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel. That's the first clue that somehow that fig tree represents Israel. A second clue relates to a technique that the writer Mark used in his gospel several times. It's called sandwiching, where he would begin to tell a story, 
and then he would interrupt it with another story, and then he would finish the first story. And he was signaling these stories are related. So somehow we can realize, wow, the fig tree and its cursing and the cleansing of the temple, there's a symbol, there's a picture, there's a parable that's going on here. And in fact, it's obvious when you contemplate it that he's saying this fig tree has leaves but no fruit. The nation of Israel is religious, but where's the fruit that God was looking for? They had all kinds of leaves of activity going on in the temple. I mean, it was really busy, but the fruit that God was looking for was righteousness and that they would be a witness to the nations, but it wasn't happening. Well, what about the fact that it wasn't the season for fruit? By the way, some uh, scholars have attempted to understand that through the ages, and there's different opinions on that. I won't go too far into that, except to say, some say, well, maybe Jesus was looking from leftover fruit. Sometimes there would be from the previous season, or buds that were edible, but there were none on this tree. Another, who had some experience and background in botany, says, well, there's male and female trees, and, 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 and one of them puts forth leaves, but doesn't have fruit, and, and that's what's happened here. I don't know exactly what, it was, what that was all about, but I do know that uh, Jesus was likening this fig tree with lots of leaves but no fruit to the nation of Israel that had lots of religious activity going on, but not the fruit that God was looking for from this nation. Here's a third quote, uh, clue. And it relates to two quotes that Jesus made in his teaching after he cleansed the temple. Hang in here with me on this one. Here's the first quote. Uh, he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And that's a quote from Isaiah, 700 years earlier, the prophet. But, but look at Isaiah in context. And he's speaking for God. And he says, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Because foreigners felt excluded. They felt like they're Gentiles and the Jews have their God. And what part do I have in that? Isaiah continues and says, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so what Isaiah is saying and what Jesus is reflecting here is that this was supposed to be a place where the nations felt welcome, but you've excluded them in several ways. I mean, the tabernacle in the wilderness didn't have a lot of walls in it. Just the Holy of Holies was inside the tent. But now the temple is so constructed that there are all these barrier walls. And, and the foreigners, the Gentiles, could only come into the outer court of the Gentiles. And now they've taken that place and made it into a marketplace. And how can you really worship there? And so while many people have felt like the reason Jesus drove them out of the temple is because they were exploiting the people, that was only part of it. I think the real issue was they were not welcoming the nations as they were supposed to and pointing them to the Lord. That was the purpose God had for the nation of Israel. And so 
The second quote is from Jeremiah, where he says in his teaching, Jesus does in the temple, but you have made it a robber's den. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 7, God tells the prophet Jeremiah to go to the gates of the temple and warn the people. And tell them, you come here to worship, but then you go out and you live unrighteously and you live in unholy ways. And if you continue to do that, God is going to destroy this temple and evict you from the land. That was six centuries earlier. And now Jesus comes and he is pronouncing judgment on the temple as was illustrated by his judgment on the fig tree. In fact, when he left the temple that day with his disciples, notice this interaction. He was going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And it was. I mean, it was recognizable from way outside the city. It was granite and marble and gold. And it was so imposing and impressive. And they were impressed. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. That would be a fulfillment of the warnings of Jeremiah and the other prophets because they weren't serving God's purpose and welcoming the people of the nations and pointing them to God. And he was saying to them when Peter wondered about the fig tree, have faith in God. Don't have it in your religion. Don't put your faith in the temple, and many were in that day, but have faith in God. And in fact, John tells us that Jesus was now the temple of God, that God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus. So they should locate their worship not in a place, not in a building, but in the person of Christ himself. And I think there are so many applications we could make from these passages, but I want to mention a few. I only listed one in your outline, but I want to throw in a few extras. Here, here's one. Don't confuse leaves with fruit. I mean, God is not impressed with buildings or religious activities. They had a beautiful temple, and they had all kinds of activity going on, but they weren't producing the fruit that he wanted. That's a warning to the church today, a lesson we can learn. We do. We're blessed with a beautiful building, and we're grateful for it, but it isn't about the building. We have lots of activities going on, but we can do all those activities and miss the purpose for which God's called us together. We think it's about doing church. Actually, we are called together not for ourselves, but to worship God and to accomplish His purpose. And that is to care about the people that aren't here. To be a witness to the people that need to know the Savior. But churches can become so ingrown that it's no longer about God's purpose. And Christ gave us a mission, the Great Commission, to go out and to reach the lost and to be witnesses for Him. And so if we get so enwrapped in our activities and enmeshed in, in our fellowship and our Bible studies and our worship services that we don't care about lost people. We're no longer praying for them and reaching out to them. We've missed the point. Don't confuse leaves for fruit. Secondly, don't create an imaginary Jesus. People do that. We, as Campolo said, create God in our own image. We think, well, I'm like this, so God might be like that. And we hear a lot of talk about, well, God being all love. 
And that's true. God is love. But don't think that it's a mushy kind of love. Because true love isn't. It includes several elements. And in fact, God is loving and he's holy. We need to understand that. And that's why Jesus was angry and righteously indignant when he saw what was happening in the temple. You know, I think this is illustrated, this aspect of God, in a children's book by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. If you ever read that, find a kid and read it to him because it's a great, well, series of seven books. It's an analogy about the kingdom. And uh, in, in this first book, uh, there's these four kids in a home in England during World War II that go through a wardrobe into a new land called Narnia. It's amazing. And the animals talk there. They find out that a wicked witch is in control and has brought winter in. And uh, they find their way to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who take them out of the way to keep them safe. And they're explaining to these kids about the witch, but about this great lion who's actually a picture of Christ. And um, they're talking about the lion, and Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. I, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's a good picture of Jesus. He's good. But does that mean that he doesn't ever get irritated or angry or righteously indignant? Of course he does. at sin. And we need to understand that we need to have a healthy fear of God because God is merciful and loving, but he's holy and righteous as well. Don't create Jesus an imaginary Jesus. And then third, don't presume to judge Scripture. That would be really presumptuous. If you come across a passage in Scripture that you don't understand, or an account or an incident in the life of Jesus or someone in the Bible, we had not better quickly, automatically reject it or think that doesn't even belong there. Or like Thomas Jefferson did. He took his Bible and he cut out all the miracles in the Bible because he didn't believe in miracles. That is judging Scripture rather than allowing it to judge us. There are some things that we come to and we won't understand in Scripture, but maybe we need to study more and go deeper into that and look at the context of these things and compare Scripture with Scripture, and sometimes that understanding will come, and sometimes it won't. There will be times we say, well, I'm not sure why he cursed that fig tree and it wasn't yet the season for figs, or even other things, and we'll say, I'm not sure about that. Well, I would withhold judgment on Scripture and say, God, there's some things I don't understand, but I do understand enough to trust you. Mark Twain said, it's not the things in Scripture that I don't understand that bother me, it's the things that I do understand that bother me. And so we need to not presume to judge Scripture, but to trust what Jesus said. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my 
word will never pass away. And then finally, and this one is in your outline, if you don't understand God's actions or inaction, wait in faith. The disciples would learn this lesson later on, years later, when they equated the fig tree and the temple and saw that Jesus was acting out a parable with the fig tree that related to the nation of Israel. And in our lives, when things happen or don't happen when we think they should, we're saying, why did God do that? Or why didn't God step in? Whether it's a a diagnosis, the loss of a loved one, a financial circumstance, or some relationship that is broken, and we're just grieving. We We can come to the place where we just are so angry at God. We can become bitter through that. We sang a song as we closed the worship set this morning, It Is Well With My Soul. Some of you know that that was written by a man, Horatio Spafford, who was on a ship going to England. But earlier, he had sent his wife and daughters on a previous ship that was going there. They were going to a religious revival in England, actually. And uh, the ship that his wife and daughters were on went down. And uh, his wife was rescued, and she telegraphed him and said uh, that their daughters had been lost at sea, gone down with the ship. So he caught a ship, and he was going across the Atlantic, and he asked the captain to let him know the spot where that ship had gone down. And so that night, the captain came and knocked on his cabin door, and uh, Spafford went out to the railing, spent time in prayer, then went back to his cabin, and he wrote the words to this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when things are going well, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Isn't that amazing? That's the soul that trusts in the Lord, even when we don't understand what's happening. Some things in the Bible... And some things in life are surprising. But if we'll wait, we'll see that time vindicates the Lord's actions because he is good. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your love and your mercy and for your righteousness, which would deal with sin, not by judging us, but by coming among us and receiving the judgment yourself so that we might have the opportunity to live for you. And Lord, that's what we want to do as individuals, and that's what we want to do as a church. Show us where our ways are outside of your will and give us the courage and the faith to trust you and to walk in your ways so that there might be fruit, good fruit, lasting fruit, produced from our lives and from this church. We pray in your name. Amen.